So what if they don't make the track team? So what if they're not the fastest swimmer? So what if they're not the brightest bulb in the box? What really matters in the end is that they love Christ. And I thank God that I'm here today as the product of grandparents who prayed for me and modeled these things before me. And I guess that's why we're together in this way. That was Alistair Begg speaking at the 2019 Legacy Grandparenting Summit. We're going to hear more from Pastor Begg in a moment. But first, welcome to Legacy Grandparenting, the podcast of the Legacy Coalition. I'm Wayne Rice, Conference Director for the Legacy Coalition, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Larry Fowler, Founder and CEO of the Legacy Coalition, and also John Colomb, Director of Development for the Legacy Coalition. Uh, hi, guys. Welcome back to uh, Hi. Hello, Wayne. Hi. hi. Hi, Larry. Hi, Wayne. Hey, Alistair Begg. He, uh, he was a featured speaker at our last uh, summit conference, and uh, he really hit a home run with the talk that he gave. It was, it was really good. In fact, that whole conference was, uh, was one that I think everybody remembers, but I, I remember Alistair Begg yeah. just being a, a highlight. Well, yeah, I think so. And and I, I would say it wasn't just about the speakers. It was a fact that it, it was a two days where God did an incredible work in the people that came. I, I think a lot of people came for the very first time to a grandparent conference and they didn't know what to expect. And it wasn't long until God just did an incredible work in their lives. And it has permanently, permanently changed them. You know, it's been two years since that conference and, and, um, now it's been long enough that we've been able to see the fruit. Oh yeah. And God really did, really did some great things. Now, uh, John, your church was a host. So you probably have a perspective on that. Well, because we were the hosts, I don't remember much about the conference, <laughs> but I do, you know, even listening to Alistair in person, it didn't hit me as much as listening to what they're going to be hearing in just a moment, how powerful it was. It just, maybe it's a new season of life for me, but what Alistair had to say, he disarms you and then he just hits you with, with truth. And uh, I, I, I think, what he gave was so life-changing as well. But the conference, yeah, it was, uh, we were thrilled to see the response and how the Lord used it. Well, after that conference, we we realized too that uh, we wanted to make it available to a lot more people. And so that's what we're doing this year by uh, not uh, forcing everybody to have to come to us, but we're going to, we're going to go to them because we're going to live stream uh, the next summit all over the country. So more people can benefit from this. But let me introduce uh, Alistair. He's been the senior pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. Actually, it's uh, Chagrin Falls uh, since 1983. And uh, he came from Glasgow to pastor that church uh, from Glasgow, Scotland. He's a graduate of the London School of Theology. And it, in, in addition to preaching every Sunday there in uh in Ohio. He's heard daily on the Truth For Life radio program, which is broadcast all over the world. He's author of several books, including Pray Big, Parenting God's Way, Made for His Pleasure, and Brave by Faith. Uh, interestingly enough, he's also acted in a feature film uh, starring Jim Caviezel um, about Bobby Jones, the pro golfer. <laughs> it's really pretty, pretty pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, he didn't do that because he wanted to pursue an acting career. It kind of, somebody heard him and thought he would 
they needed the character of somebody that spoke with a Scottish brogue. And so he decided to do it just for fun. And uh, I heard he was a hit. <laughs> I didn't I, see the movie. <laughs> I did. And what he didn't realize when he showed up was that he was supposed to be the hard drinking, <laughs> swearing <laughs> coach of Bobby Jones. And uh, so maybe they'll want to take a look at it. But he repented of it after he did his little spot. <laughs> All right. Alistair uh, uh, and his wife, Susan, have been married since 1975. They've got three grown children, and now they have eight grandchildren. Here is Alistair Begg speaking at the 2019 Legacy Grandparents Summit. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis and to chapter 50. And as you're turning there, uh, let me say that it is a privilege uh, to be here. I'm delighted to be in the company of uh, uh, my fellow speakers and participants. I'm glad to be in a context where friends that I've known and loved for a while are present. I'm always delighted to be in the company of uh, Fernando Ortega and uh, regard him as a, as a choice friend and as a brother. And I'm intrigued to be invited to a conference like this. I joked with my wife on the phone. I said, you know, honey, I used to be invited to speak at the junior high ski retreat, and, uh, and those days have now gone. And, uh, now, I'm, I, have, I have either graduated or declined, depending on the way in which you'd like to look at it. But uh, I, I, I regard this as a great privilege. Uh, Susan and I are novices at this uh, grandparenting game. Uh, we have everything to learn. I don't have anything to share by way of wisdom concerning uh, any lessons that uh, we have learned. We're trying to learn them all. But I do uh, want us to... Um, consider what uh, God's Word has to say tonight about uh, leaving a legacy. And so, I want to read the concluding verses of Genesis chapter 50 from verse 22. So, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation— the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt." A brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Well, as I say, I find myself uh, surprising myself somewhere between uh, the experience that used to be mine when in reading or listening to Second Timothy being expounded uh, with the exhortation from Paul to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. I, I found that that seemed to be uh, apropos for me. I felt that I was always the youngest person in the room. And now I'm heading for the kind of Caleb experience 
You remember where he says, here I am, 85 years old, and, and still as strong as I was at the start. And somewhere on that continuum, each of our lives are represented this evening. And it is wonderful that we can come together and heed uh, the words of the psalmist from Psalm 71. Remember when he says, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I will proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Reminding us that the promises of God are not worn out by the passage of time. But the psalmist makes it clear that one generation will proclaim the name of God to another, that his righteousness will be proclaimed to a generation yet unborn. And so rather than roam around the Bible in some topical fashion, which would be fine, but rather than do that tonight, I want us to consider the notion in light of these closing verses of Genesis. And you can read them again before you go to bed. The young man that we're introduced to in chapter 37 of Genesis, uh, when we're introduced to him, he is 17 years of age. By the time we're reading this chapter, he is, as we're told, 110. So he has lived long enough to see his great-grandchildren. He has lived long enough to understand that they then were going to be able to contemplate the memory of this man. They who in turn would be conveying the lessons they had learned for virtually a century to the children of their children. And subsequent generations would have a reason to inquire about these bones. Uh, why do we continue to have this coffin with us? And when they would inquire about the coffin, then they would be told the dramatic story that was the life of Joseph. And they would discover that they were moving around with this coffin, not because of a morbid interest in bones, but because it spoke of a glorious prospect of deliverance. Now, if we were to try and unpack this, perhaps we could observe Joseph, as it were. If we squeeze our eyes together, we can look and we see him. First of all, standing the test of time. Joseph standing the test of time. The opening sentence of verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, covers between 50 and 60 years of his life. It's 93 years since he had been lifted from the pit. It is 80 years since he first stood before Pharaoh, some 60 years since the death of his father Jacob. And compared to the first half of his life, to the early part of his life, these silent years that are covered here in just a sentence, these silent years appear to be almost humdrum. It's one thing to display a vibrant faith, an unwavering faith, in the face of challenge and difficulty. It is quite another thing to live a life of steady obedience in the routine, everyday round of life, which, of course, 
is for most of us most of our lives. And the retirement years will reveal a great deal about our priorities. There is, with becoming a grandpa, a certain realm of privilege. It is accompanied by great danger, all kinds of danger, the danger of being swallowed up and drowning those around us in nostalgia, the kind of approach which constantly is looking through the rearview mirror, the kind of approach that says, you know, when I was a boy, if you'd only been around then, then you would have understood, and so on. And you find, at least where I live my life, that a number who have just reached a point where they could be phenomenally useful are actually becoming increasingly useless. Just about the time that a woman thinks her work is done, she becomes a grandmother, and the door swides wide open again. And yet—and I say this with respect—it is a pain to me when so many go to fossilize in Florida. I understand that Cleveland is not the garden city of the, of the nation, but nevertheless, there is work to be done. I know they can do things in Florida. Maybe I'm just a little jealous. You don't care about fossilizing in Florida. You like to go and hibernate in Healdsburg. I know, because I've seen many of you up there. And the danger is that the horizons then become limited by earthbound preoccupations, by the fleeting moments of time. So what is actually happening in the life of Joseph in standing the test of time is that he realizes that he mustn't spend his time in seeking to make his posterity comfortable in this foreign land, but rather that they might be kept unsettled in this foreign land so that one day they will be finally settled in the land of God's promise. Because it's fairly obvious, isn't it? In time, the famine was forgotten. The refugees, for that's what they were, grew accustomed to things. Children and grandchildren grew up not knowing anything other than what they knew. Do you realize that the children at school today don't even know that there was a Berlin Wall or that there was a reason for that wall or that there was a reason for bringing down that wall? They have lived their entire lives completely unaware of many of the things that have shaped the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century. And so when you go back to the time of Joseph and the people in, of Israel in Egypt, unless these lessons were conveyed, unless the grandparents took the children's heads in their hands and said to them, listen, do you know why we have this coffin with us? Let me tell you. You see, in the providence of God, there were really two factors that preserved the people from being absorbed by the surrounding culture. One was the aversion of the Egyptians to fraternization. Even when Jacob and the rest of the family come, the Egyptians are concerned that they will be separated from them and that they will uh, work themselves out in their own little uh, quadrant of, the, of the, the nation. The other is the constant reminders from Joseph. 
so that one of the things about being a grandpa I've discovered is that you, you get to sing songs. You don't have to be a singer, but you can sing songs. But, but I can remember, I can, I can imagine that the grandchildren are saying, you know, a grandpa is singing the same old song again. And so what is it that he sings? Well, well Joseph is singing, we're on our way to Canaan, we will not be moved. On our sea. And they say, we love it when you sing that song, Grandpa. When are we going to be there? Is there really a Canaan, Grandpa? Is there ever deliverance, Grandpa? Is this true, Grandpa? Think heaven, not Caven. It's the same question. I was drawing in the street in San Francisco with one of my grandchildren. I know you're not supposed to, but so what? And we were chalking. We were chalking on the street. She's now eight. She was just turned five. And I was doing my best artwork, which is <laughs> pathetic. And, uh, and she was singularly unimpressed with that. But out of the blue, out of the blue, she said to me, Papa, I don't want you to die. And I said to her, look. She said, what is that? I said, as long as you can do that, you don't die. What does the writer to Hebrews tell us? By faith. Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones. Joseph bore an Egyptian title. Joseph married an Egyptian wife. Joseph enjoyed an Egyptian lifestyle. And Joseph was a classic illustration of Hebrews 11:13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Joseph standing the test of time. Not a flamboyant, flashy, instantaneous, striking impact that passes like a meteor in the sky but the life of steady consistency. Joseph revealed his pilgrim status in the test of time. Now, I took too long on that, so I will speed up. <laughs> Secondly, Joseph, not simply standing the test of time, but Joseph facing the final curtain, facing the final curtain. Now, what is quite striking about this is how matter-of-fact it is. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Could you pass the coffee, please? <laughs> right? That's quite amazing, isn't it? You see, dying men and women are often unwilling to believe what is apparent to all who observe them. But in Joseph's life, there's no indication of terror, no grasping at shadows, no clutching at vain things. Instead, his final words, his dying words, are brief, and they're not self-focused. 
he was encouraging those he'd leave behind with strong reminders of God's covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, he was, if you like, at the forefront of a pattern which runs the whole way through the Bible. You remember that, that Paul, when he faces his demise, says to Timothy, he says, the time has come for my departure. The word there is analusis. It's the word that would be used for striking tent, wrapping up your tent and going home. It'd be the, it'd be the word that would be used for weighing anchor and heading uh, home. It would be the word that would be used for unyoking uh, the, bur the oxen from, from that which held it as a beast of burden. And Paul says, the time has come for my departure. Peter says the same thing. I intend always to remind you of these things so that after my departure, you will be able to bring them to mind. Now, what is it that, that Jacob, Joseph wants them to know? He wants them to know that God will surely come to their aid. He will surely come to their aid. And he wants to make them promise that they will take him up, that they will carry his bones with them. So, standing the test of time, facing the final curtain, and crossing the great divide. So Joseph died, being a hundred years old. Like his father, before him, he was gathered to his people. Unlike his father, he didn't have an elaborate funeral. He simply asked that he should be kept in this way as a constant memorial of the future that will be unfolding for the people so that they might know that he believed that the reality of Canaan that awaited them was as sure as the promises of God. It wasn't grounded in how he felt. It wasn't because of how good he'd been. It was because God is a covenant-keeping God. And what he was really saying to them was that he wanted to be ready that when the wagons rolled, that he was ready to go in all of the difficult days ahead. The coffin would be a visible reminder to each generation that Egypt was not their home. It could have been said of Joseph what was said of somebody in a later century. That is, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Part of the challenge and part of the absence of songs about heaven in contemporary hymnody is because we're so earthbound. I mean, you, you haven't in a hundred years heard, heard somebody singing a song like, uh, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Not unless your great-grandmother has been around. When is the last time you heard somebody? Because we have become so fixated on making it very good now, living as long as we can now, the preoccupation with wellness, making sure that we extend everything for as ever and ever and ever. What? Don't you believe there's a Canaan? Grandpa, is there a Canaan? Grandma, is there a heaven? Standing the test of time and facing the final curtain and crossing the great divide. You see, when... Um, his followers, 
and this will be true of our grandchildren as well, when they were going to be buffeted by life circumstances, when they were tempted to be driven to despair, when they were tempted to settle down and enjoy simply the comforts and the compromise of the surrounding culture, the coffin in Egypt stood as a silent testimony to God's provision in the past and His promise for the future. How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend? His love is as great as His power and knows neither measure nor end. Tis Jesus, the first and the last, whose Spirit will guide us safe home. So we'll praise Him for all that is past, and we'll trust Him for all that's to come. For the people in that generation, the symbol was a coffin. For us, after Jesus, it is an empty tomb. In light of this, when, what, what, what is it that we should acknowledge? Let me suggest, first of all, that, that it would be good for us to acknowledge our frailty. Our frailty. You say, well, um, it's, really, it's really quite distressing, isn't it, when, when we try and act as if things are not true? And, uh, you know, there was a day when there were certain aisles of the of the drugstore that we had no interest in at all. <laughs> I mean, we used to walk in and say, I wonder what that's for. I wonder what they do with that. What would you do with one of those things? What is that? Now we've got them all. We're there. Excuse me. Could you tell me where the thing? And when you go to sit, say, what was it I was going to ask for? I, some, that's, uh, that's frailty. That's frailty. That's Ecclesiastes 12, the great poem, you know where he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come, the evil days come. What he's talking about there is not days of peculiar evil, but the evil that is expressed in the demise of the human frame. And then he uses the picture when, 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 the, when the grinders cease for all the dentists, when, there's, when, it's, uh, when there is inadequate occlusion, when your wife is saying, well, how about a little soup, honey? That kind of thing, Right? Now, I'm not going to go through that. You can read it for yourself at home. <laughs> but but it, it means acknowledging this, that, there's, that there's, 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 there's more chance of me breaking my ankle in the grocery store than breaking 80 on the golf course. Fact. Now, nothing's new in that because that's been true for my whole life, but it is now compounded by the passage of time. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, and this is the word that our grandchildren need. They need the word of God. They need to be convinced of the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. They need to know that the Bible is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. It is the map for their journey. It is the food for their souls. It is the constraint and the guidance for their, their entire existence. So what if they don't make the track team? So what if they're not the fastest swimmer? So what if they're not the brightest bulb in the box? What really matters in the end 
is that they love Christ. And I thank God that I'm here today as the product of grandparents who prayed for me and modeled these things before me. And I guess that's why we're together in this way. You see, this is not nostalgia. This is not disappointment. This, we're not here to, to do the George Burns program. You remember, you remember we, George, with a big cigar? It was about as big as him if you stood them side by side. You remember him? Okay. He used to do this song. He had the big cigar and the tuxedo, and it went like this, because he spoke it with music behind at a bar down in Dallas. An old man chimed in, and I thought he was out of his head, because being a young chap, I just laughed it off when I heard what the old man had said. He said, never again will I turn young ladies' heads or run and chase after the wind, because I'm three-quarters done from the start to the end, and I wish I was 18 again. I wish I was 18 again to go where I've never been, because I'm two-thirds, three-quarters done from the start to the end, and I wish I was 18 again. That's simply nostalgia. That's regret. The only reason any of us would like to be 18 again, presumably, is so we could love people more than we ever loved them that we could care for them more than we ever cared for them, that we could pray for them more than we ever prayed for them. But beyond that, no, we press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. I had hoped that Sir Fernando would sing a hymn tonight, and uh, I guess my friendship is not as strong as I thought it was because <laughs> he, he ignored it completely. But you know that wonderful hymn that goes, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. And then my favorite verse of it, unnumbered comforts to my soul, thy tender care bestowed before my infant heart conceived, from whom those comforts flowed. And one of your posthumous joys in heaven will be to see the answer to your prayers in the lives of grandchildren who are heavy on your heart tonight, that we pray on for them in the awareness of our own transience and our own frailty, the frailty we acknowledge. Secondly, the theology that we embrace. What is the theology? The same theology that was uh, driven, driving Joseph here. God will surely come to your aid, he says to them. Didn't look like it. In fact, it looked like it would never happen. God will surely come to your aid. And what happened? God came to their aid in the person of Moses, in the experience of the Exodus, in the shedding of blood, down the corridor of time. What is the story? It is the story of God coming to the aid of his people. But you, Bethlehem, though you be least of all the clans of Judah, out of you will come forth one who is to be the ruler of my people Israel. And you will call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. While we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for us. What is this about? It is about God coming 
to our aid. You see, the words of Joseph epitomize the confidence with which the Old Testament begins and the New Testament ends. How does the New Testament end? He who teaches these things says, surely I am coming soon. You see, the story of Joseph ought to shoot us always forward to Jesus. Finally, the frailty we acknowledge, the theology we embrace, and the legacy we leave. You say, well, I thought that was your whole point. Yeah, well, I did take a long time to get to the point. I understand that. But here's the question. Where did Joseph get this? We could equally have done Daniel, couldn't we? You can imagine all the people talking when Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all got taken away. The people saying, oh, I don't know what will happen to them now. Oh, they've gone over to that Babylon place. They've put, them in a, they've put them in a university that's full of nonsense. They've given them a new name. They're monkeying around with them, something fierce. Goodness gracious, I think the whole thing is over and done. And what was true? They came forth as gold. How did this happen? How did Joseph get this? We don't ever hear of God appearing to Joseph. There's no record in the, in the story of Joseph of some angel showing up, uh, bringing a, a special oracle for him. No, we can only but assume that it is grounded in his experience about which we have no record. I mean, he pops up on the stage because his dad somewhat generously and we would say foolishly distinguished him from his brothers with, a, with giving him a, a special coat. But his dad wasn't just completely a bad guy. He would have sat with Joseph at night and gone through the Shema with him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Are you listening to me, Joseph? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And these things shall be upon your hearts, and you shall teach them to your children when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Now say that after me, Joseph. And we're going to do it again in the morning, and we're going to do it when you go to bed, and we're going to do it every morning to start the day, and we're going to do it every night before you go to sleep. People say, well, you don't want to do that to your children. You don't want to indoctrinate them. Are you kidding me? If you don't, somebody else will. So it is the best of privileges to have a kindly grandmother sit you beside her and to speak to you with such great passion and compassion. Joseph learned to trust the promises of God. That was Alistair Begg with a powerful exposition of the last few verses of Genesis. Uh, the end of Joseph's life, and uh, boy, he brought up some great insights. Larry, this message uh, surely resonates with you since you've written a book about about Joseph, or at least about how parents can raise their kids to be like Joseph in today's world. Um, what'd you think? Well, I wrote that book about 15 years ago, <laughs> and, and of course, uh, <laughs> Alistair Begg, and him, his message and my book are indicators of how rich scripture is because I looked at the life of Joseph and took a completely different take on it. I, I loved what he shared. It was so good. And I learned from it. 
And you know what? I've studied the life of Joseph quite a bit, but I still learned a great deal and just appreciated his perspective so much. This is so good. Uh, you know, I just loved what he said there towards the end that J- surely Jacob, you know, whatever you think about Jacob, and sometimes Jacob was kind of a scoundrel, and a, you know, uh, had some negative things, but but that he surely must have uh, every evening taken, like he says, taken Joseph uh, in his hands, his face, and said, Joseph, listen yeah. to me. Um and recited the Shema and made him recite it back and so on. And then you have Joseph who have, there's all those silent years, years and years and years that we don't really read much about Joseph, but at the end of his life, he is still true to what he was taught way back in Canaan, Mm -hmm. way before he ever went to Egypt. It's really pretty. And whoever has heard a sermon about bones, (laughs) take my bones Mm -hmm. and that they will serve as an altar as a reminder to the, you know, keep me with you so you won't forget because you're going to be on foot for a long time. And I and I just thought also that statement about our frailty, Wayne and Larry, uh, the, the song of from All Worship the King, oh, frail children of dust and feeble as frail in thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies how tender, how firm to the end, our maker defender, redeemer, friend. And I just, you know, at, at 76 years of age, <laughs> um, I'm starting to realize more and more and more the, the, how temporary life is, that none of us are going to get out of this world alive. Mortality runs in all of our families, and it's mm-hmm. good to think about it now. Well, it really is. And, you know, all three of us are older grandparents. We've been grandparents for quite a while. And it may be that some that are listening are brand new grandparents and they're still involved in their work and they're still feeling very healthy and, and everything. I I mean, I I think 10 years ago, I ran a, I ran a half marathon, but I'm not doing it today. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I, to those that are younger, uh, I just want to say, you know, take these things to heart because boy, life goes by fast. Your time with your grandkids goes by fast, and it won't be long. If you're not feeling it yet, it won't be long till you're feeling the frailty or, or facing crossing the great divide. This life is short, and we want to make every minute that we can count for eternity. Right. Well, it's really interesting how he tied together, um, you know, Joseph's coffin, um, which was which would serve as a reminder to his descendants of God's promise uh, that he compares that with, with, you know, that our coffin is the empty tomb, you know, that we look at, at, at the resurrection and uh, the empty tomb serves us in the same way as a reminder of, of God's promise. Uh, Heaven is Canaan. You know, I love the way he, he, what his grand granddaughter, uh, was asking, you know, is is heaven for real? Is it true? And that we have to be able to be be able to to find a way, you know, to to let our grandchildren, as well as our children, know that it's true. Uh, you you just recited a great hymn, John. Um, you know, Alistair just made the point that we don't sing too many of those hymns anymore. You know, so many of the songs yeah. today that we sing in church are about life today but not too many uh 
songs about heaven, and it's interesting. I think we've lost, uh, you know, a great tradition of uh, kind of eliminating those songs. Well, from and when the hymn we book. sang out of that little youth sings spiral songbook, "This world is not my home." I don't think we were thinking about it as in the light of how quickly we'd get to the end of it. I mean, my, 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 it was a great reminder. Yeah, we used to sometimes would criticize some of those songs for being too otherworldly, you know, where your head's in the clouds instead of, you know, here where it, where, where it matters. But as you get older, you realize, you know what, um, we, uh, we really can look forward to, you know, yeah. over Jordan, going to Canaan. Canaan land, oh, yeah. Beulah land, as the old hymns would would put it. Yeah, it was it, that that all of that is true, and that's the great promise that that there's so much more, and that someday that we would all be like him, and be like Jesus. And for me, the song in the sweet by and by, there's a land that is fairer than day. I mean, it just moves me deeply every time I hear it these days. So, as uh, Alistair said, we press yes. on. <laughs> no nostalgia. We yeah. we, we press oh, yes. on. Oh yes. <laughs> That was great. You know, guys, we're getting closer to the uh, 2021 uh, Legacy Grandparenting Summit, which is coming up in October. Our speakers are going to include Josh Mulvihill, Kevin Harper, John Stone Street, uh, Reggie Joyner, Kara Powell, Rob Reno, Ken Davis, Terrence Chapman, Valerie Bell. We're also going to have music from uh, Alistair Begg's uh, old friend, Fernando Ortega. He's going to (laughs) be back with us. Uh, Scott Wesley Brown will also be uh, singing, and the Isaacs. All the information is on the LegacyCoalition.com website. Um, You can register now for the conference in Birmingham or at a simulcast location near you. And uh, from what I understand, we we now have uh, well over 100 simulcast sites around the country. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And and we have some uh, joining us from Canada. If you're listening to this from Canada, you keep watch on that because there will still be more appearing on our map over the next couple weeks. That's great. Well, that wraps up uh, Legacy Grandparenting, the podcast of the Legacy Coalition. Until next time, this is Wayne Rice, Larry Fowler, John Colomb saying so long and praying that you have a great week of intentional Christian grandparenting.